Well, we started last week on this series called Are You the One? And uh, it's a series about relationships. And the truth is, is that um, many of us are going to end up, if you're not already married, then you're perhaps on your way to marriage. And some of you, you know, you, you are going to be single and you want to be single. And that's kind of a gift. And that's a, another sermon for another day. Um, and some of you are praying, God, please don't let that be me. Um, and when we talk about uh, relationships in general, and I love it because um, there's a number of different reactions. And the reactions are indicative of kind of where we stand and the reaction of... Um, Awesome. I can't wait to talk about it more. Let's consume more content. And we said last week, the problem with that is that, that you're just thirsty at that point, right? Like, you're like, yes, I love to learn about it. It's like, that's a little eager beaver of you, okay? Um, some of you, you're like, I don't want to talk about that at all, right? I've had enough of it, and I get it. You're, you know, single and bitter. We understand. Um, and then for some of you, right, like, you're, you, you're married, and you're like, you're like, <clears throat> Could somebody have told me like half this stuff before I got married? Because this is a wild ride, right? Um, in marriages and in relationships, they are a huge determiner of one, just our general happiness in life. But I'm convinced also, in addition to that, they're a huge determiner um, of our affections and our um, ability to follow Jesus. That's simply to say, when you have someone who loves Jesus alongside of you, man, it just makes all the difference in the world. And in fact, that's what God has called us to. And so we're talking about um, relationships and the trajectory. And I want you to know that no matter where you are in this relational kind of spectrum of people, whether you are happily married and have been for decades or single um, and, you know, (laughs) happily single for decades, you know, kind of wherever you are in the spectrum of things, um, this is hopefully going to be helpful for you. And the reason is, is because last week we started off with this um, series title, Are You the One? Are you the one? And the assumption behind that is I'm asking the question or you're asking the question, looking for someone else saying, are you the one? Are you the one? But here's what we know. In relationships, you can't control the other person. You can't control the other person. You can't control what they do. You can't control what they say. You mean you just simply can't control the other person. So the question isn't, are you the one? As in, are you the one I'm looking for? The question is, are you the one that they're looking for? Are you the one that God has called you to be? Are you becoming the person that God has called you to become? Because the most healthy relational decision that you can make is to become the person that God has called you and created you to be. And by being that, you are healthy. And from health comes health and flows health. And healthy relationships is the byproduct of the being of which we are. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, man, it's 9.15. I wasn't ready to go there yet. That's fine. Okay, we're going to get there. Trust me. Um, Today I want to talk about a subject that I think is... Is, is, is really important, and I, I want to talk about it on a, on a little bit more of a granular level. We're going to hop right into the scriptures, and I'm going to kind of unpack what the, the subject of today as we're going through the initial couple of verses. Um, in the book of John um, is a book about Jesus' life. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four accounts of Jesus' life. And as Jesus is um, walking on planet Earth and talking and teaching, he would encounter people, he would interact with people, he would do some miracles, he'd do all kinds of stuff. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which are called the Gospels, are the four accounts of Jesus' life. G- John records in his account of Jesus' life um, an interesting interaction that happens in chapter 4. So this is what happens. John chapter 4, we're actually going to start at about uh, verse 4. So Jesus was going from one place to another, going from um, uh, Judea, and he was going towards Galilee, and um, pious Jews um, didn't go through Samaria because Samaritans were, uh, for a lot of historical reasons, people that the Jews didn't interact and interface with. It went back to um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all kinds of exports, and if you're like an uh, Old Testament Bible nerd, you'll get that. For everybody else, just know they didn't like each other. So, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob has given his son 
to his son Joseph. That's just like his old you know, kind of testament thing that had happened. And so they're saying, okay, this was a place of biblical importance and biblical significance. Jacob's well, verse 6, was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey and was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I like how it says this because it's like Jesus was a little bit tired. Sometimes we don't think about that as Jesus. Like my dude at some point, like he was a little kid and he skinned his knee and he cried, right? Like he was, he was God with flesh. And so he's walking and dude's like, man, I am parched right now. I need to get a drink. So verse 7, a woman from Samaria came out to draw water. This was not the typical time, and there's a bunch of thoughts about perhaps why she was out there. Maybe it was because something had happened and she all of a sudden had to go get water. Maybe it was because um, she was a woman of Samaria, and women of Samaria, Jewish men, never talked to, which we're going to find out in a second. And in addition to that, maybe she was kind of an outcast of Samaria. That's like, it's like getting kicked out of a fraternity, right? It's like, how do you get kicked out of hell? That's wild, you know? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll put the 11.15 on the podcast. Anyways, <clears throat> so she came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to get some food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John fills in the gaps, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answered her. So she's saying, you know, how are, you, you're not even supposed to talk to me. What, what, what's going on here? And, and it's interesting because when we, by the way, read the Bible, we read it with tone and inflection. Um, and there is a lot of conversation and scholarly and biblical debate about the tone that these things are being said in. And so Jesus answered her. I'm going to try to give you a spectrum of some of them. He said, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. <laughs> now, I want you to imagine this, because for those of you, you've read the Bible a ton, right? Or you've read the Bible at least some, or some of you, you this is brand new. But, it, but if you're pretty familiar with this story, um, I want you to pretend for a second and just go with me on a mental exercise that you are in this story, right? You're this lady who has perhaps been outcast who can't go at the time that other women go because they would oftentimes go in groups, they would go earlier in the day. So you're this lady who's going at a time that no one else is going out, when no one else is going out, perhaps because you can't, perhaps because they don't like you, perhaps because they won't let you. And you talk to this dude. And he says, hey, may I have a drink? And she says, why are you talking to me? And then he just all of a sudden says, if you realize who was talking to you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. I feel like I'd be like, what are we talking about right now, right? Like a second ago, I went a little bit, you know, farther than perhaps we were ready for the 915 sermon. And, and some of you were like, okay, I, I don't know. He'll probably bring it back at some point. But like, right, this lady, I, can't, I imagine that she is beyond confused. She's like, I would ask you for a drink. This doesn't even make sense. And so the woman said to him, verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. I don't know if you know how this water drawing works. It's in a well. And the well is deep. So where do you get that living water? Now, sometimes living water was this idea of like a spring water that would kind of like bubble up and, and, and come from you know, the ground, and it was this kind of amazing thing that would happen. And so she's looking and saying, man, like there's water down there, <laughs> but buddy, you didn't even bring a bucket. How are you trying to get water out of this whole deal? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Like, like are you saying that you are better? Because it sounds like you're saying that you're better, that you can give this living water. And so Jesus said to her, 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. In other words, let's look at this well for a second. Let's take this well as kind of the example. This well, it's a great well. Um, it's got some Old Testament roots for this well. It's a little bit contentious now because it's in Samaria, you know, but, but still, this is a historically significant religious well. But if you drink from this historically significant religious well, um, let me just tell you, you are going to continue to be thirsty. He said, so every, whoever drinks of this well will be thirsty again. Well, that's obvious because thirst is never fully and finally satisfied. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. He says, the water that, that I'll give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Right? So he says, okay, so you've got this kind of like temporal well, and then you've got this eternal well. And so long as you try to satiate the thirst for the eternal well in this temporal well, you will continually be dissatisfied and looking for more. But so long as you go to the eternal well, you will always have water and you will never be thirsty again. And again, in this moment, I think this lady was like, bro, what are we talking about right now? But the obvious you know, parallels to our life are simple, right? It's that we... As people, we're made with appetites. We were made with appetites for things, among them our relationships. And we were made to be people who seek to find something to fill, then satiate the need of that appetite that we have. And that is very normal. In fact, I think that is the thumbprint of God on us. As the Old Testament says that he has put eternity in our hearts. I think there's something deep inside of each one of us that longs for that. In fact, one of my favorite trains of thought was from a guy named C.S. Lewis, who you probably maybe have heard of. Um, and C.S. Lewis basically put the train of thought that said this, that every, every desire, every appetite that we have has something to meet that appetite, has something to satiate that need. So you look at a baby um, and it cries for milk, it's got mama. You look at a, you know, a, the person and they're looking for water, they've got water. You've got somebody who's looking for food, they've got food, lungs, air. But he says, if we find something of which we cannot find the, the satisfaction of our needs, perhaps we will find that that need was never meant to be satisfied on this planet or by anything around this planet. It's what we would call an emotionally logical argument for the necessity of God. That deep down, I'm consistently longing and looking for something. And here's why that's important. Because I believe that the primary place that we look for something to fit God or something to fit that hole or that place or that need that we have is in the context of relationships. That's the primary thing that we can look at because relationships make us feel safe. Relationships, or at least they should. They should make us feel secure. You want to know what the beauty of marriage is? Let me just tell you this. The beauty of marriage is that's the place where you are most fully known in your strengths, your weaknesses, your faults, and your strengths. And that is the place that in light of your faults and your weaknesses and your depravity and your brokenness, you are still fully chosen. Someone knows everything about you and still fully chooses you. And that mirrors what we find in Jesus. That God who knows everything 
knows our strengths, knows our weaknesses, knows our thoughts, knows the things that we don't want anybody else to know, knows the things that we've done that we wish that no one else on planet Earth will ever find out. Like, like he knows all that stuff, saw all that stuff, and still chose us, loved us, sent his son to die for us, that because of our rebellion, our sinfulness has created a gap and a chasm between us and God of which we cannot bridge the gap. And so God said, I will in his name is Jesus. And so the question that we're going to wrestle with right now is this simple idea of are you satisfied in Jesus? Are you content in Jesus? Is Jesus not just, not just a sense of like, oh, I'm satisfied, but like, like this well that springs up inside of you. And it's interesting because when we say that, and I was thinking about this this week because I was thinking, man, this is, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm conscious, conscious and conscientious of our audience. And I'm thinking... <clears throat> The problem with this question, to be fair, in the, in the context of relationships, is almost every time someone asks this question, it's aimed at people who are single, right? It's aimed at people and say, okay, but is Jesus enough for you? Or you're dating, is Jesus enough for you? You're like waiting for him to pull the trigger, and it's been like 17 years, and he still hadn't pulled the trigger. And it's just like, you know, someone gets up and they say, but is Jesus enough for you? Or you're in a marriage that's really difficult, and somebody just looks at you with a smile, and they say... <clears throat> You should be satisfied in Jesus. And they look, you know, maybe you get something and say, brother, you know, and you're like, I want to punch you in the throat, brother, right? Because <clears throat> there's sometimes this sense of dissatisfaction. And so someone will say, okay, well, you are dissatisfied, and so you should find satisfaction in Jesus. What's interesting, what I find to be fascinating about that is we would do that in almost no other context. In the Bible, the warning against worldly wealth is not to the poor. It's to the rich. So why in a relational context would we aim the question of satisfaction in Jesus at the relational people who want more instead of at the people who have a lot? Because some of you are happily married, and that is the chief competitor for satisfaction in Jesus. Because the truth is, is the things that you would feel in God are the things that you feel from your spouse. It's the comfort, it's the satisfaction, it's the security, it's all these things. And do I think it's relevant towards everybody who's single, who's dating, who is engaged, who's married, who's married and, you know, not wishing they weren't married or married and like, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into and married and like, this is pretty cool and married and like, this is amazing, right? Like, this is for everybody because all of us have this central tendency to say, I am looking for satisfaction in things other than Jesus, of which I will continually look to and look for in life. And this is why... You know, for some of us, you're, right, you're, you're, you're a serial dater, and so you just, you know, by that I don't mean like you date. Anyways, that's a dad joke. <laughs> I was thinking. Anyways, I had, I had a t-shirt idea. I was like, serial dater, and they're just like eating different bowls of cereal. Um, <clears throat> anyways, <laughs> it's true of that, that, that you're continually looking for someone to make you feel like, man, you are valuable. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are special. You are talented. You are gifted. You're incredible. And so you find another person say that, another person say that, another person say that, or you're married, and your spouse says that, but they kind of have to say that, right? Or at least you feel like they do if they don't say that. Or if they don't say that, you're like, yo, why aren't you saying this? And so we go and we try to find it in other things and other people. And for some people, it's the, it's the person in the cubicle next to us. And for some of it, uh, it's just 
I'm just looking to satiate that need, that gap, that hole in my life in accomplishments and productivity and followers and commas in my bank account. And Jesus looks at him and says, let me just, let me just tell you. Satisfaction in Jesus doesn't eliminate the appetite, but it eliminates the need for that appetite to be satiated because I am satisfied in Jesus. And I was thinking about this, and as I was praying, and I was just thinking, thinking okay, God, like, I've, like, like that is 100% true, right? Like we should be satisfied in Jesus. We should be satisfied in Jesus. We should be satisfied in Jesus. But here was the thing that I was like, man, this is the question that I'm really dying to get to today. It's how. We all know that we ought. We all know that we should. We all know that ultimately true satisfaction comes from Jesus. However, for many of us who live a Christian life, who look to God, who want full and final satisfaction from God, who look and say, we're not going to replace this temporal, you know, and make it ultimate in terms of relational equity. What we're going to do is we're going to put Jesus at the center, but it seems like there's still this desire inside of me to not fully be satisfied, content in this well springing up. And so if you just heard me talk about satisfaction and that frustrated you because you feel like you're trying to pursue that or you don't really know how to pursue that or you feeling like you ought to be, you should be, you want to be, whether it's, you know, single, dating, engaged, married, whatever, like if you heard that and you thought, awesome, now what? I am so glad that you're here because Jesus is not done with this conversation. So he continues on. So Jesus... So the woman said to her, sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And this is the point where um, I think we all can acknowledge that she still had no clue what was going on. She's like, so this is like an everlasting gobstopper from Willy Wonka. Shouts out to people born before 2000. <laughs> so Jesus said to her, and this was... This was this is why, like, sometimes you would want it. you like, sometimes, like, I mean, I would love to hang out with Jesus. Sometimes I'm like, dude, I would not love to hang out with Jesus. Because of what he says next, he said, so Jesus said to her, so go call your husband and tell him to come here. So come on, come on, call, call, call your husband and tell him to come here. Now, here's what Jesus knew. That was going to be a difficult subject for her. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And he said to her, you were right. And saying, I have no husband. I feel like she was like, I know because I don't have a husband. And I just told you that. <clears throat> and then Jesus continues. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. <laughs> She's like, Okay, so I said part of that. I didn't say all of that. Like, I know all of that is true, but that's really not what I offered off Jesus because I don't really want to go there, right? And what's interesting is, like, when we get to that part, it gets a little bit tense in the room, right? Because thinking, thinking of satisfaction in Jesus, and this is what I think you know, Jesus is beginning to go with this, thinking of satisfaction in Jesus is nice until I have to look at my track record of looking in satisfaction for, in other places, or looking for satisfaction in other places, Thinking about being satisfied in Jesus is great, 
But one of the healthiest things I can do is, is, is look back at my past, look back at my track record and say, you know what, I have this internal tendency to look in so many other places to find satisfaction. You, we could all do this, by the way. Like, this is why we don't want Jesus to be here, like, physically this morning, right? It's like, the Holy Spirit is enough right now. Because nobody wants, it's like, okay, actually, Phil, let me talk about your history. All right, Betsy, you know, or whoever your name is, right? Like, let's talk about your, you know, we're just like, Jesus, let's, let's not talk about that right now. But he goes there. And so the woman said to him, verse 19, and by the way, I think they just didn't put her name in here. One of the questions I would ask God when I get to heaven, which I probably won't ask God when I get to heaven, but I would like to ask, like, what's her name? I think it's because he's like, look, I'm not trying to put Karen on blast like this, all right? This is going to ruin that name forever. So we're just going to leave it as the woman. So the woman said to him, sir, <laughs> I perceive that you're a prophet. I feel like you just would have said, mm, sure, you know. <laughs> wow, you're so perceptive. You have perceived that? Whew. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you said in the Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, what's interesting about this, and there's a ton, there's, honestly, there's, there's a ton of conversation around, around what's motivating this. Um, there's basically two camps of thought. One camp of thought thinks that she is asking this question to basically redirect the conversation. It got too uncomfortable for her. And so in somewhat of a way to kind of like justify herself or move the conversation, it's like, whoa, that was a little too close from home. It's 9.15 in the morning. Um, let's go in a different direction and let's talk about a theological question. And so let me just put you on the spot here, Jesus. And some people will say this was because she was feeling uncomfortable knowing that she was known. And so instead of dealing with that and identifying that, she decided to go to a different subject. And some people will say, this was her just keying off on a great opportunity to ask someone who she thought might have some insight, an important question. That she was genuinely wondering, which mountain do we worship on? And there was a lot of debate around that topic. Was it Jerusalem or was it this one particular mountain because of a number of things that had happened in the Old Testament? So which was the right place? And we don't know what her motive is in the conversation, but we know how Jesus responded to what she said. And what Jesus responds with, I think, is so incredibly important. It's almost like this Jesus-like covert, inception-style way of communicating important things that he would communicate. And so he kind of lets it go. And she says, you know, so, so where, is this, where is this place where people ought to worship? Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, there's going to come a place where worship is not determined by the place. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. This was that salvation was coming from the Jews. It was from the Jewish lineage and the heritage that the Savior would come. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, to have our thoughts, to have our desires, to have our affections, that, that, that we would worship him because God is spirit, verse 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and truth. Now, here's, here's the first part about this. So Jesus, in dealing with this, with this person, as she's talking, and he's talking, and they're at the well, and she's, you know, he's uncovering her sin and saying, I'm the well that you know, won't run dry. I am the person that will give eternal life. You will not be hungry. You will not be thirsty again because of me and because of what I've had if you would only come to me. And so she kind of diverts it. He says, let me just tell you a little bit of thing about me, about how people look for me, seek me. They, work, they worship me both in spirit and in truth. In spirit and truth. There's a component of our worship to God that is our head, and there's a component of worship to God that is our heart. And so he looks at her and says, hey, this is, instead of telling you where to worship, let me tell you how to worship and whom the object of your worship ought to be. We are to worship God both with our mind, our thoughts, our intellect, as well as our heart. Let me tell you why these are both important. Because the person who worships God just with their heart, just with their, their sense of, of a spirit, it's like, man, I just have this spiritual connection into God. Man, oftentimes in the church world, we just kind of end up in the crazy world because there's no objective determination of what is true and what is not. So it's become subjective reality, relative truth, which is the you know, kind of grandchild of existentialism, which has no systematic in the entire world. And what we look at is there is a component where our heart's attention and affection should be to and for God, right? The psalmist said this, that you know, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. And so spirit without truth kind of puts us in the loony bin category. But truth without spirit puts us oftentimes in the staunch self-righteous category. This is why, by the way, on Sundays, this is one of this, you should know this. This is one of the reasons why we sing and preach. Because when we sing, the, the words that we sing, the songs that we sing, the music puts the emotion behind the thoughts and the prayers. It's like, you ever watched a movie that had no soundtrack to it? I haven't, because that's boring, right? Like, it tells you what to think. I was watching, my kids were watching terrible, you know, stuff. They're not watching terrible stuff. It's just, it's, it's kid stuff, and it's terrible by nature, right? And there's, like, this laugh track behind it. And it's funny, because we were, you know, watching some ridiculousness. I don't even know what it was. Like, we, there's 75,000 apps that have kid shows on them and stuff like that. You can judge my parenting later. But we're watching this one particular show this week, and, all, and there's this laugh track behind it. I'm like, why? Like, laugh tracks are the most weird thing on planet Earth. But I'm realizing, oh, it's because what they're saying isn't actually funny, so they're telling us, laugh, right? It informs the attitude behind the content. And so when we worship together, we sing and we learn. Our spirit cries out to God, and God's word cries out to compel us and to convict us. Here's why this is important. To be satisfied in Jesus, he is the place, he is the thing, he is the spring inside of us that wells up, and of it we will never be thirsty again. But he is also the one that how that mechanically begins to happen is that we begin to seek him both with our heart and with our head. We seek him both in spirit, looking to say, God, I am pouring out my soul for me on the emotive level. How that works for me just in personal quiet time is prayer. It's prayer. It's the time where I'm just talking to God and I'm just full face-to-face -face talking and saying, God, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. God, you are incredible. God, your will be done. That's difficult for me to say. So I worship him in spirit, but I also worship him in truth wanting to know more, be more, understand more about Jesus. 
So you want to know how to be satisfied in Jesus? The first two steps is this. Do a self-analysis. Do you worship God more in spirit, in truth, or neither? In identifying which one, because most of us are going to trend towards one or the other, identifying where I trend towards gives me information for how I am to become more satisfied in that area. My experience is this. The area I trend away from, there's a reason I trend away from that area. And that's the place that God's trying to grab me. So let me ask this as a very practical question. A very practical question towards your satisfaction in Jesus. This is married. This is not married. This is dating, not dating. This is a question about not who are you dating. It's a question about who are you becoming. How is your time in the Word? And how is your time in prayer? I don't mean that to cast guilt and shame. I'm just asking honestly. Like, how, how is your time in those two things? Because my guess is we could all collectively find our heart's attention and affection and where we're finding satisfaction in a direct proportion to how we're doing in our time in the word and in prayer. So he says, true worshipers, seek me in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. <laughs> Jesus says, okay, let me just be clear. I who speak to you am he. He's like, I, I, I know this might have been a little bit crazy, and I know that you were just trying to get some drinks from the well, and you were trying to get a bucket, and I didn't have a bucket. And you said, where's your bucket? And then I just went off on this tangent about this you know, existential crisis that you have and this continual thirst and looking and longing and all this kind of stuff. And so let me just be clear. I am the one that you heard about. I am the one that they talked about. I am the one who will tell you all these things, and in fact, I have just told you all these things. So just then, what's interesting is we kind of take that part and we're like, okay, done with that story, next story. This is one continuous narrative. Just as the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They were just like, whoa, that's crazy. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out of town and they were coming to him. So she runs back and she's sitting there saying like, yo, this was bananas. Let me tell you about every, let me tell you about what I just experienced, right? And this is sometimes our reaction when we come to church, when we, when we encounter, encounter and interface with Jesus in a meaningful way for the very first time. That all of a sudden you're like, it's like the scales have fallen off your eyes, the veil is pulled back, and you're like, this is, the, this is it. This is it. I had some thoughts. I had some questions. Honestly, he didn't really settle the debate about which mountain or which city. Um, but what I know is that was nuts and that is real. So she goes back and tells people. People start to, you know, have conversations. They start to come to try to find Jesus. And the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one, or, said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, have you just been like cheeking your food? Like, 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 is it just like folded in the pouch of your robe or something like that? Like, like, where did you get this food? And Jesus, you know, then says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I feel like at this point, if I was a disciple, I'd be like, all right, dude, I was just trying to figure out if you're hungry or not. That's all I want. 
Like, like, do you want chicken fingers? Yes or no? But I love this because Jesus, Jesus, in, in kind of a mixed metaphor type of way, says to him, he says, okay, so I have a drink that will never run dry. I have a thirst that cannot and will not be quenched. And the people who get this, they start to pursue me. This well springs up inside of them as the Spirit of God becomes alive inside of them as they have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And now we worship him with our spirit, with our heart, and with truth. And he says, and oh, by the way, I'm not hungry either. And this is why, because my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I know we read that and we're like, what in the world are we talking about at this point? Welcome to Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> Let me break down on a principle level the, the essence of what we need for that this morning. There's a lot to that content, but I'll simply say this. True satisfaction comes as we, as the people of God, having given our, our life and our salvific hope and direction towards Jesus, then begin to look at him and worship him with our hearts, with our minds, and with our actions. We find true satisfaction in this because this is, in fact, what God has created us for and to do. In other words, I'd say this, that for many of us, we, we know Jesus because we spend some time in prayer. We know Jesus maybe because we spend some time in word. But then our lives, we just go out and live normal, right? There's not this sense of mission. There's not this sense of calling. There's not this sense of, of what Paul would write in Philippians 2, 3, where he you know, looks at the church at Philippi and he says, hey, I want you to know this, um, that that each of us, each of us, each of us should not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. In fact, um, you should do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourselves. We should look to what Jesus said when Jesus said, man, the way to the top is through the bottom, that if anybody wants to be great among you, you must make yourself the least and serve. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here's the question we have to ask this. Is your life patterned after a life of service and love for other people so that they will know Jesus. Here's what I found. People whose hearts are for Jesus, whose minds are for Jesus, and whose love for Jesus overflows in a service and a deference to other people and how they love and serve other people, those are people who are satisfied. Those are people who, though they don't have everything right internally, are not operating from a place of deficiency. Those are the people, the few people, who are worshiping in spirit and truth and whose food is to do the will of our Father. This, by the way, is the entire context of our church. This is why we are organized and systematized the way that we are. We want you to love God with your head and your heart. We want 
We want to be madly in love with Jesus, and at the same time, we want his spirit inside of us to overflow in a way that we just dive into knowing more about him. And in the middle of that, we just empty our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. And I know for some of you, you're like, man, I thought we were talking about relationships. This is it. Because, again, if you are this way, you don't have to become this way in marriage. Let me just ask you this. Can you imagine being married to somebody like that? Can you imagine being married to somebody like that? I mean, being married to somebody who, man, like their heart, they're like, man, I just, have a, like, I just love the Lord. And they just spend time in his word, right? And in the middle of all that, like they know God, you know, mentally. They worship him in truth. They worship him with their hearts. And at the same time, they, like every room they walk into, it's about loving and serving the person in the room. If you, if you aren't satisfied In Jesus, through those avenues in your singleness, you will not be in marriage. And if you are not that in marriage, you will not find that anywhere else. Because it's through Jesus alone. So the take home of this whole message is I want all of us to be satisfied. I want all of us to look to Jesus and not look to every other thing on this planet that says, do this, you'll be happy. Do this, you'll be satisfied. Do this, you'll have joy. Do this, you'll have peace. Do this, you'll find meaning. Do this, you'll find purpose. Do this and fully actualize the individuality of yourself and you will find life. Jesus says, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that is not life. And many of us, honestly, the reason that we're here today is not because we actually believe in Jesus yet. We have just experienced so many other things that we're willing to give anything a shot because you have tried all of the other wells in life and you're here and you're like, yo, I don't know if this is it, but I got a lot of scars to show for all the other wells I tried and this one seems to have some hope to it. I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to know that we live in a world that patterns the world around the pursuit of legitimately everything else to try to make us happy and satisfied. But there is one whom we look to There is one whom we look to who who saw this, knew this, said this, and in a beautiful way did this for us. The night before Jesus died, he got his closest followers together. And he said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. This is my blood, which is going to be shed for you, poured out for you, for the sins of many. There's a new covenant or new relationship, a new establishment. Then he went and he prayed for a while. And as he prayed, it said, man, he was praying. He had, there, there was such this sense of stress and anxiety that he actually started to sweat blood. And though the emotion of him was longing for God, it was fearing everything else, but he said, Father, your will be done. He knew the truth of what needed to happen. And then he did it. In other words, we don't serve a God who simply asks us to do this. We serve a God who did this for us first. And so what we do as Christians is simply a reciprocation of what he has done for us. Who we are as Christians is simply trying to mirror what he has already done for us. And so when we look to God, we look to a God 
who loved us. We look to a God who knew us. We look to a God who knew we needed reconciliation. And we look to a God who, in spite of our rebellion, was sacrificed on the cross for us. And so we wanted to end this service in a way that we haven't in, in you know, a few weeks now. And that's taking communion together. Because I want this to be a tangible representation and a tangible reminder that we, in fact, are a people who have experienced this. We, in fact, are a people who experienced one who loved us, knew us, and sacrificed for us. And he said, I want you to take this cup, drink it, remember me. Take this bread, eat it, and remember me. This is my body and this is my blood, which are broken and shed for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And let me say this. Band's going to come up. We're gonna, they're going to play one more song. Um, we have in, our, in the seats below you um, is a little cup. Um, and here's going to be the invitation with communion. Um, this is simply a remembrance that this is the well inside of us. Um, if you're in here and you're on the fence about Christianity, on the fence about Jesus, um, we would invite you to think about it, consider it, but to not participate in communion. And the only reason is, is because this is one of the sacraments that basically says, Jesus, if you would do this for me, I'm in, I'll do this back for you. I do this as a response and a reflection to you. And we wouldn't ask you to do that if that's not something that you actually do and believe, right? We wouldn't say, oh, it's your first time? Here, get baptized, right? Unless you want to, unless you're ready for that. So as we take communion, the invitation is for anybody and everybody. And perhaps for you, you've been on the fence, and today is your day that you realize, man, I have sought satisfaction in everything and everywhere else, and I know that I need to find it in Jesus. I know that Jesus is the truth. I know that Jesus is the life. And I've been trying to debate with Jesus, well, which mountain? What about evil? What about these things? What about the people? What about, yeah, okay, good questions. But if you've encountered Jesus, he changes your life radically. Then perhaps today for you is the day that you place your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus as Lord. And if you're here and you're seeking satisfaction in another place, let this be a place to center us, to remind us that we are to seek him in spirit, in truth, and in action. With our heads, with our hearts, and with our lives. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would turn us into create in us this spirit and this well of living water that does not and will not run dry. Pray for every woman and man in this room who has been seeking satisfaction in every other well that today you would call them to the well that springs up never leaves us thirsty, and overflows into eternal life. That today they would make you their Lord and their Savior. I pray for everyone in here, regardless of where they are in their relational status, who knows you, who follows you, whose life is patterned after you, that we would be a people who seek satisfaction in you, that you would be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you, and our satisfaction in you would come simply through knowing you with our head, loving you with our heart, and following you with our actions and with our lives. 
And I pray today it would be a centering as we take this cup and take this bread. And as the band is playing, as we feel like we are ready and we're prepared to say, Jesus, you are the well. I want satisfaction from you and you alone. And I might continue to have appetites on this planet. I might continue to have things I long for on this planet. But I know that you are the only thing and the only one who satisfies Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And God, I pray that you would make us into a people who love you, who worship you in spirit in truth, and in action. That we would find satisfaction in you and you alone. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.